Good morning. Glad to see you all today. I hope you will have a tremendous uh, Memorial Day celebration and relaxing time uh, tomorrow. And I'm quite pleased that we get to jump into God's Word together and continue our study of John, of the Gospel of John. Obviously, we're in John 7 uh, this morning, and uh, this heart starts a whole uh, new, in a lot of ways, section of this book, uh, this Gospel that we've received. So, John 7, if you're not already there. If there's one thing that uh, we know to be true about human beings, it's that we live in a constant state of expectation. There are some people who do tend to fly by the seat of the pants. There are some who wing it, but even those people do live with certain expectations about the future. You look ahead, you anticipate, you expect that certain things are going to happen, you plan and you live your life accordingly. And when you think about expectations at whatever level you have them, when you expect something, that shapes then how you respond when something unexpected happens. The previous expectations that you have influence the way you respond to something out of the blue coming at you. In the mornings when I take my kids to school, I fully expect it to take a certain amount of time. I expect to get in my car, pull out of my driveway, and go and be there in 13 minutes or whatever it is, 15 minutes. Um, Not that I plan it down to the minute or anything like that, but I fully expect to get there at a certain time, and I know what time we need to leave in order to get the kids there so that they're not late. If I have all these expectations, and then there's an unexpected amount of traffic in the morning, and something has happened on the freeway, then my expectations will shape how I respond, and I'll have to learn how to respond appropriately. It's one of the great challenges of life when you're very concerned about time and getting there on time, as I am. (laughs) Now, it's important to think about this idea of expectations and to frame up our conversation this way because the reality of expectations plays a huge role in the Gospels. You may or may not realize, but the the people that Jesus is ministering to, the Jewish people, the Israelites, have certain expectations built in. They have been shaped by a background of the Old Testament, by a, a history of their people, They have promises of God, and so they have all of these anticipatory expectations, and those will shape how they respond to someone like Jesus. They have a whole list of things that they expect God to do for them in the future that he's going to do in fulfillment of his promises. There's a really helpful paragraph I'm going to read to you in a second by this author who I think understands these expectations in a very clear and specific way. Let me read this to you about the Jews during the time of Jesus. There may have been some Jews, perhaps those wielding obvious power, who were happy to play down the possibility of radical change. But most were hoping some fervently for a new turn in Israel's fortunes. Here's what they thought. If there was one creator God and Israel is his people, then this God must act sooner or later to restore her fortunes. Israel is still in a state of exile, and this must be put right. The symbols of covenantal life will be restored because the covenant will be renewed. 
The temple will be rebuilt. The land cleansed. The Torah kept perfectly by a new covenant people with renewed hearts. Now, they have all of these expectations, and many of them are built into and baked into this future Messiah who they think will come. They assume that when he shows up on the scene that certain things are going to be true of him and that he's going to act in particular ways and do certain things. So into this uh, these set of expectations that the Jews have, Jesus comes onto the scene. And he starts performing miracles, these signs that we've been looking at in the Gospel of John. He starts claiming to speak for God. And the people have a whole host of reactions, right? And they have these reactions because of their expectations. But Jesus comes and he upends those expectations. And this is why one of the reasons they have so much trouble with him. And it's here in this this middle ground between their expectations and who Jesus is and the way that he performs actions unexpectedly that we learn so much about the core of his ministry. It's when they expect certain things and then he does the opposite or does something unexpected that we see very clearly who he is and what he has come to do. That's what we're going to find in John chapter 7. So here's what we're going to look at today in this section, verses 1 through 24. Two ways the unexpected actions and teaching of Jesus clarify his mission. Two ways the unexpected actions of Jesus clarify his mission. And you'll see the first one here is that the unexpected purpose of his ministry is to die. This is out of the blue for the Jewish people. So look with me at chapter 7 and verses 1 and 2. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, The Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now John, as he writes here, clearly wants us to understand the events of chapter 7 as taking place some undisclosed time after the feeding of the 5,000. So the feeding of the 5,000, the bread of life, discourse, people call it, in chapter 6. That whole section where Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, and he teaches about what that means, and the people can't handle it, and many disciples walk away. All of that happens in chapter 6. And so John here is linking this event to that, but saying it's some time later that this took place. And Jesus here decides to stay around the Sea of Galilee in this region in the northern part of Israel. And he decides to stay there, it says very clearly here, because the Jews in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, are trying or seeking to kill him. This all started, this threat on his life, back in chapter 5 and verse 18. If you want to flip maybe just a page back and look at this with me. When Jesus healed the lame man on the Sabbath who'd been uh, crippled or lame for 38 years, unable to walk, Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. He has this confrontation with the religious leaders, and then he claims to be speaking for God. Then look at verse 18 of chapter 5. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
And so because of all of this, because of this plot against his life, now he's staying in the north around Galilee. Now there's a bit of a timeline here that I want you to understand that I think will start to open up the next few chapters of this gospel, and it's hinted at here in verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. All right, now there are three major festivals, feasts, or celebrations in the Jewish calendar, and this is the middle one. All right, I'm going to put these on the screen here. Maybe you've never thought of it this way, but they're quite important for Jewish people at this time. So three of them. First of all is Passover. And you can see that Passover begins the new year. This is the feast or festival that was mentioned at the beginning of chapter 6. This is the feast, Passover, from which Jesus says that he's the bread of life and performs the feeding of the 5,000. So that whole sign is connected to Passover. The Feast of Booths, which I'll mention and talk a little bit more detail about here in a minute, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's got several names in the Old Testament, but this is the one that's in the middle here. Then there's the Feast of Dedication, which will take place and is mentioned in chapter 10 and verse 22. So the timeline here, the Passover begins the new year. The Feast of Booths is about seven months later at the seventh month of the year. And then the Feast of Dedication is the ninth month of the year. So chapter six begins a new year. Chapter seven, seven months later. Chapter 10, the ninth month of the year. And then you get to chapter 12 and you're at the next Passover. So a full year has happened between chapter 6 and chapter 12, and chapter 12 is the Passover on which Jesus dies on the cross. So that helps you to get a timeline here. Now, what was the Feast of Booths? Probably not one that you're super familiar with. This was a feast or a festival that was set up in the books of Moses, in the Pentateuch, the first five books, and it was a way to remember God's provision for Israel while they wandered in the wilderness. So it's called the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths because they lived in tents in the wilderness. God provided for them. And so the people would come to Jerusalem and they would build these temporary shelters, these temporary tabernacles or booths or tents, and they would live in them for seven or eight days during this festival. Now, the point of doing this year after year was for the people to remember to look back and remember the way God had provided for the people of Israel in the wilderness. But it wasn't just to look back, it was also to anticipate that God would provide for them again in significant ways, that he would bring salvation for them again, like he had done at the Exodus, in the future. And so they fully expected that. So they were looking back and they're looking forward. Now, it's important that you understand some of that background because as you read in chapter 7 and chapter 8, all of this takes place during the Feast of Booths. It's about an eight-day-long festival, and all that happens in those two chapters takes place during that time. And Jesus performs some very significant symbolic actions during the feast that tie his ministry back to that feast and basically say, I am the fulfillment of God's salvation and of this feast now who has come. We'll get into the, some of those symbolic actions in the next couple of weeks. But for now, a little bit of background there, and then it's important that you know this feast 
Even though we don't think a lot about it, it was the most popular of all the three. People loved this one. And they would travel to Jerusalem in droves. Lots and lots of people came to Jerusalem because it was the most popular, and they would celebrate the feast there. And it's important that you know that all these people were in Jerusalem at this time because of what Jesus' brothers say in verses 3 and 4. So look there with me. They give him some advice. So his brothers said to him, in light of it being this feast, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So his brothers were present at the wedding in Cana, where Jesus turned the water into wine. So they knew that their brother was very capable of performing miracles, of doing these sorts of things. And so their reasoning here goes something like this. You can expand the reach of your ministry if you will capitalize on this moment. Go to Jerusalem. There's lots of people there. They're all celebrating a religious festival. Go lead a throng of people into the city, perform some miracles, garner more disciples, get a bigger following. That's what you need to do in order to make your ministry successful. They want him to go, and they seem to be in favor of him reaching more people. They're they're not necessarily antagonistic against Jesus here. They seem to want him to succeed, but according to verse 5, they don't have a proper and a true belief in Jesus. Look there at verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. So John is saying, based on what they say here, they don't really understand Jesus and his ministry. They don't actually believe in him. It's not a place of genuine faith that is leading them to say this. And the reason for that is because they don't get the real purpose of his ministry. And this is the unexpected part of of what we're going at in this chapter here. They're not really getting, they have certain expectations about the Messiah, about Jesus and who he could potentially be, but they're not really getting his real goal and his real purpose. His brothers are caught off guard by what is truly the end result of his mission on earth. Look at verses six through nine as Jesus starts to explain that. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After this, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So what Jesus says is, look, you are part of the world, Right? They're not believing in him. They're part of the world. They may not realize it, but they're actually opposed to the true purpose of his mission. And the world hates him. It doesn't like him, and it's fine with them. It doesn't like Jesus because he exposes its works of darkness, the sin that is there. But the real reason that Jesus won't go up to Jerusalem is caught up in these words, my time or my hour has not yet come. He says it twice here. My hour or my time has not yet come. And then in verse 8, he says it again. My time has not yet fully come. He said something similar to this. If you remember back at the wedding in Cana, his, his mother wants him to 
perform some miracle. And he's like, my time has not yet come. And this is a, a theme throughout this gospel all the way up until we get to chapter 13 and verse 1. And look what we read here. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. And how did he know his hour had come? It was his hour to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so this moment, when he's going to depart out of the world, when it's time for his crucifixion, that's the hour. And that's the whole purpose of his ministry. That's why he came, to die and to rise from the dead and to ascend to the Father. Now the brothers here, I mentioned this a minute ago, but they're most likely looking at this as a massive marketing opportunity in many ways, right? They want him to lead a triumphal throng of pilgrims up to the city, make a dramatic entrance, get more followers, maybe perform some miracles, and possibly even lead to a revolution, an overthrowing of the Roman invaders, as they were known among some of the Jews. One author described the brothers like this here. They perhaps understood that their brother was the long-awaited Messiah, but they shared with their contemporaries a set of wrong assumptions and expectations about what he had come to do. As a result of their truncated understanding of his mission, they think he has come to conquer rather than to suffer and then conquer. They give bad advice that Jesus rejects. This is the unexpected part of his mission. And this is what becomes so clear for you and I right here. They don't see it. It's unexpected to them. But because Jesus responds the way he does, it's so clear to us. He came to suffer and then conquer. And I would say, I would alter this a little bit, and I would say he came to conquer through his suffering. His suffering was the path to conquering. There is no conquering for Jesus without his suffering. He came to serve and to die, not to overwhelm his opponents with political savvy and force. Notice here how Jesus tells his brothers that they are of the world. Look in verse 7 again. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The implication is they are part of the world. So the world's not going to hate its own because they're a part of the world. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this whole agenda, this misunderstanding that you have about conquering, about the Messiah, these expectations that you have are driven by a worldly way of thinking. You are thinking like worldly people, and you're not thinking according to God's agenda. So let me slide from that thought into a little bit of application for you and I this morning. When we think about the mission of Christ to die and to suffer, what he came to accomplish, I am worried that for too many of us Christians today, it's too easy to think like worldly people, when it comes to God's purpose and mission. We forget this, that Jesus came for this purpose, and this is our goal too. 
We want to align our agenda with God's agenda. There's a very consistent way of thinking among some Christians today that views the world as the enemy of the church and not the mission field of the church. Those are two entirely different ways of viewing unbelievers and the culture around us. It's too easy and too many Christians are sliding into this way of thinking that views the world and the culture around us as the enemy of the church and not the mission field of the church. Christians will say things like this. The stakes are so high now that we have to use whatever tactics we can to win. That is not the mentality that we pick up from God's agenda as expressed here. That is not the way of thinking that the Apostle Peter picked up from Jesus and taught in his letter, 1 Peter. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus understood what God's agenda was, what his mission was, and he acted accordingly. He came to serve. He came to give his life for the good of others. God's agenda was to seek and to save the lost, not to win a political or cultural battle and lose one's soul in the process. Jesus follows through here. He is committed to his obedience to God's agenda. He doesn't seek influence and doesn't follow the advice of his brothers. Look at verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. There's a ton of speculation about him, a wide variety of opinions on him as his ministry has been going on now for a couple of years, and you see that in verses 11 through 13. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. All of these opinions are driven by the expectations that they have for God's Old Testament promises, the Jewish Messiah, all of that. But here's the point. They can't understand, and Jesus' ministry really can't be fully grasped until you incorporate his death and his resurrection and see the full picture. That's when we begin to understand the true purpose of his mission and his ministry. He came to die for the sins of his people. But in the meantime, as he goes up here to the festival in private and not in public, he's going to continue to clarify his mission for us in some unexpected and unheard of ways for the people. Here we go. 
Two ways the unexpected actions of Jesus clarify his mission. The first one, we've just seen the unexpected purpose of his ministry is to die. And the second one, the unexpected priority of his ministry is to speak the truth. Now, as we get into this section, I'm going to try to break it down for you because it's a little bit hard to follow, okay? Jesus reveals God. We know that from the Gospel of John. He's come to die and to reveal God to us. And he speaks the truth. And in these verses, he speaks the truth, as our our point is here, our second point. He speaks the truth in two specific areas, all right? First of all, in verses 14 to 18, he correctly represents God for God's glory. So he's going to speak the truth about God, and ultimately that is so that God can receive the honor, be seen for who he is, and be glorified. He speaks what the Father has and does, what the Father gives to him to speak, and he does it in a way that honors and glorifies God. Then, in verses 19 to 24, he speaks the truth, again, to honor God, but this time He speaks the truth by putting the true meaning and purpose of the Old Testament on display. So here's how I would summarize this section. Jesus points to God. The Old Testament points to Jesus. Those are the two sections of this. Jesus points to God by speaking the truth. The Old Testament points to Jesus, and he shows that as he speaks the truth. He's the culmination. He's the point of the whole thing. So... The Feast of Booths, it says in verse 14, it's right in the middle of the feast. This feast would have lasted eight days, and Jesus, right in the middle of it, gets up and begins to teach. Look at verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Now, obviously, he went up privately to the the city, to the festival, and so this seems to be at odds with his purpose, but... His agenda isn't to stay hidden forever, to sort of hide in the corner. His agenda is to do what God has for him to do, and part of that is to teach and to instruct at the right time and in the right way. And so he continues to do that here. Notice how the people respond in verse 15. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? This is unexpected to them, right? They're shocked by Jesus and his teaching. Why? Well, they tell us specifically why they're shocked by his teaching here. It's not here necessarily that he teaches as one who has authority, but look what they say. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So during this time, if you were a teacher of the law, you had studied under another teacher of the law. You had studied under another rabbi. And to study under another learned authority was to learn how to argue your position from the Old Testament and to cite and to quote other rabbis as authorities. That was the way in which you went about teaching the Old Testament. So you would defend your position by citing other authorities. But this wasn't true of Jesus. He'd never studied under anyone, and he wasn't citing other rabbis and other authorities. He was just teaching and had an unbelievable grasp of the Old Testament. And this was shocking to them. How can you teach in this way when you've never studied under anyone and you're not citing them? 
And Jesus explains to them where his understanding of the Old Testament comes from. Look at verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus is not basing his explanation of the law on some other rabbi. He's not giving them novel interpretations that are his own. He's teaching them in this way because God has taught him, because he is God. John 5 and verse 19, Jesus says this, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever ever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And so he's teaching based on what the, the Father has taught him, But the question for these people listening is, how would they know whether his teaching was true? How would they know whether it was accurate? Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Understanding whether his teaching was true couldn't be sorted out by appealing to some other rabbi. To respond correctly to Jesus' teaching takes a prior faith commitment. In other words, there is a disposition of your heart that has to listen to Jesus' teaching in a particular way in order to respond appropriately and correctly. There is a moral dimension to how you listen to what Jesus has to say. You can see that in these words in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will. It's a matter of your will, of your desire, of your commitment. So let me me explain it like this to help you understand this. There's always a faith commitment that you make prior to listening to the teaching of Jesus. Everyone does this. Some people begin with a prior commitment to their own reasoning, their own smarts, and their own ability. And then they assess the teaching or the truth claims of Jesus based on their own reasoning and their own smarts and their own position. They sort of put themselves above the teaching of Jesus and the person of Jesus and sit in judgment on what he says. They think of themselves as in a neutral position from which they can now judge what Jesus says about himself and about the Old Testament. Jesus is saying that the proper way to assess his claims, to really understand what he's claiming, is to place yourself under them and come with a genuine desire to understand and to do God's will. That will lead to a right grasp of his words. And so based on what Jesus says here about our heart commitments, we can say, ultimately, that any rejection of God and of Jesus is a matter of morality. It is never, finally, an intellectual argument that keeps someone from coming to Christ. It's always a matter of the heart. People reject Jesus because they want to pursue their own will and their own desires. They want to be their own authority, and they're not willing to submit to him. That's what Jesus is arguing here. So when you sit in judgment on his teaching, it's a matter of the disposition of your heart because you think you're good to go. And you think you're in the right. 
and you're not willing to submit your will and your morality to him. Romans 1 describes this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The fact that there is a God is quite clear and people suppress and reject the truth because of their own sinful hearts. But those who humbly pursue God's will and want what God wants, they see that Jesus has come faithfully representing God and desiring to glorify him. Look at verse 18 in John 7. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. And that's what Jesus does. He's saying, look, I'm faithfully representing God. I'm pursuing his glory, and so my words are true. And if you have a desire to do God's will, you will see that, because I faithfully represent God. So, verses 14 and 18 He speaks the truth by pointing to God's glory. Now, verses 19 to 24, the Old Testament points to him. He points to God. The Old Testament points to him. Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? This is fascinating. It's a little hard to follow, but let me try to explain to you what's going on here. The Jews have the law, right? I mean, that was their thing. They have the Old Testament law. But they're not keeping the Old Testament law, he's saying, because they're trying to kill him, which is clearly a violation of one of the Ten Commandments and of the Old Testament law. Well, they don't like that. And so look how they respond in verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. They call him possessed because they don't like what he's pointing out there. And so Jesus responds by further showing them they don't grasp the intention of the Old Testament law. Look at verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. What work is this? It's the work in chapter 5 of healing the lame man that we've already talked about a bit. Healing the lame man on the Sabbath. Okay? That's the work that he's using to frame this whole conversation. Now look at verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So now he's really getting into their kitchen. And he's trying to explain to them why his healing this man on the Sabbath is not a violation of the Old Testament law. So here's what the Old Testament law rightly understood. So here's what he's getting at. Circumcision is a sign of the Old Covenant. It's very, very important. Baby boys were circumcised on the eighth day, according to God's command. But what if the eighth day fell on a Sabbath day? What do you do then? Now you have to violate God's command to keep the Sabbath and not work on the Sabbath in order to circumcise this baby boy and fulfill the law. And so they would do this, they would violate the Sabbath by circumcising these baby boys because they judged that circumcision was so important because it brought a baby into the covenant with God and made him whole before God. So that was their judgment. 
That's what Jesus is pointing out here, this whole circumstance. Now look at verse 23. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So here's Jesus' argument to them. The purpose of the Sabbath is to point to the ultimate rest and wholeness that humans need in God. You circumcise on the Sabbath to try and obey the law and fulfill that goal. And Jesus says, I have shown you the ultimate goal of both the Sabbath and of circumcision, but both of them will be found in me, and I've demonstrated this when I brought full healing and wholeness to this man. So the Sabbath and circumcision are all fulfilled and realized the purpose of them in wholeness and completeness by Jesus' healing this man on the Sabbath day. That was the whole intention of these anyway, to point to this spiritual and physical wholeness found in Christ. It's the true intent of the law, but they aren't seeing that. They're missing the true intention of the Old Testament law because they won't hear Jesus And they won't see how he fulfills that. Look at verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And I think you could place verse 24 as the summary application for this whole passage. Judge with right judgment concerning the ministry of Jesus. Even if it's unexpected, even if you don't clearly see it right away, come with a humble disposition to listen to him and see how he glorifies God and how the Old Testament points to him. Come and see the purpose of his mission and what he came to accomplish. He came to die to bring his people to God. He's come to speak the truth in these two areas. He's come to fulfill the Old Testament law and all of this points to him. That's his ministry. And that, was he, that is exactly what he has come to accomplish. And in the coming weeks, we will look at this discussion further and how it further explains and explores the ministry of Jesus and what he has come to accomplish. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for our time together in your word this morning. I pray that you would open our hearts and our, our minds to understand these things to see your purpose in coming to die and in coming to reveal the glory of the Father and the way in which the Old Testament points to, to your mission and finds its full fulfillment in you. Encourage our hearts with these truths today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.